The news continues now, so let's hand it over to Michael Smirkanish and CNN Tonight. Jim, thank you. I am Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Merry Christmas to all who celebrated this weekend, although in some respects it doesn't feel like the most wonderful time of year. Instead, it feels like we're all just one degree of separation from COVID right now, as if we all know someone who's just been infected or exposed to the virus, or perhaps you yourself just tested positive, vaxxed or unvaxxed, boosted or not, with symptoms or without, and now we're quarantined again. We have some breaking news on the quarantine front this evening, new guidance from the CDC on how long those infected should stay isolated, not just healthcare workers. This is a big change, so stay tuned for that. But what a way to close out 2021 with an Omicron bang. And that brings me to our survey question tonight. Which year do you think history will judge worse, 2020 or 2021? It's really a toss up for many of us, right? Let us know your vote by going to my website at Spurconish.com. We'll share the results later in the program. And what will 2022 bring? Can we collectively look forward to the new year as a nation that is still without unity on immunity? And with this virus testing us so much again, testing is still such a huge problem with this latest variant crashing down on us, something even President Biden conceded on his call with governors earlier today. Seeing how tough it was for some folks to get a test this weekend shows that we have more work to do. I know the lines have gotten very long in some states. That's why I ordered FEMA to set up pop-up sites in places with high demand to shorten the wait. We went from no over-the-counter tests in January to 46 million in October, 100 million in November, and almost 200 million in December. But it's not enough. It's clearly not enough. Detection, of course, Detection, of course, is key to prevention, and America's testing capacity isn't enough to match demand. So when will we catch up? As you heard the president admit, there's a lot more work to do on that front, and again mentioned the government's purchase of a half billion rapid at-home tests, but they won't be available until sometime next month. Too late to avoid disruptions to holiday plans and keep countless people from being sickened, including loads of airline crew members. That's why thousands of flights have been canceled at the busiest travel time of the year. And speaking of air travel, are mandates for unvaccinated flyers on the horizon. Right now, only international travelers must show proof of VAX status and a negative COVID test to board a U.S.-bound flight, though Biden hasn't deemed vaccine passports necessary yet for domestic travel. His chief medical advisor, Dr. Fauci, sounded warm to the idea this morning. When you make vaccination a requirement, that's another incentive to get more people vaccinated. If you want to do that with domestic flights, I think that's something that seriously should be considered. But then he walked it back a bit on CNN this evening. No, what I said, uh, Jim, was that everything when that comes up as a possibility, we put it on the table and we consider it. That does not mean that it is going to be likely to happen. Right now, I don't think people should expect that we're going to have a requirement in domestic flights for people to be vaccinated. When I was asked that question, I gave an honest answer. It's it's on the table and we consider it, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. I doubt if we're going to see something like that in the reasonably foreseeable future. Meanwhile, with this virus exploding like wildfire, the CDC just actually shortened its recommended isolation period for those who test positive for COVID from 10 days to five days if they're asymptomatic and then should continue with at least five more days of masking when around others. A shortened isolation period is something our first guest told us he'd like to see 
and he thinks it's exactly what our country needs right now and will tell us why. Joining us is top health authority, Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha, it sounds counterintuitive in one sense to reduce that isolation time period given the spread of this disease. Why, in your expert opinion, does it make sense? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me back, Michael. Um, Here's why. Uh, First, we know that most people who are contagious are contagious in those first five days. Uh, It doesn't capture everybody, but most people it gets in those first five days. Um, Second is we know a lot of people find the 10-day isolation burdensome enough that they're not getting tested and they're not actually following through. What I'm hoping is uh, that this new policy does two things. First, Uh, It says that you only need to isolate for five days. I think that improves the incentive for people to get tested and isolate. Second, the policy is also pretty clear that that after five days, you have to wear a mask for another five days. And so for the days six through 10 that you would have been isolated, you still have to be wearing a mask and you have to be asymptomatic. I don't think this is going to contribute to more spread. I do think it's going to create an incentive for more people to get tested. And obviously, for people who need to get back to their families, need to get back to their kids, get back to their jobs, it lets them do that as well. So overall, I think this is the right policy. It's a good balancing act. At the end of that five-day isolation time period, should one need to get tested? Well, actually, this is something I have written about, and I believe that having a rapid antigen test at the end of those five days would make a difference. It would be helpful Uh, because if you're negative on that, that means you're no longer contagious. The CDC did not put that in. I wish they had. Uh, I think they, I don't know why they didn't exactly. My best guess is we don't have a lot of those rapid antigen tests available, but I think that would have been a helpful addition. Right. Uh, Quote, for all those exposed, best practice would also include a test for SARS-CoV-2 at day five after exposure. You think if there were sufficient tests, they probably would have altered that and strengthened that recommendation. That's my best guess. And look, I I wish they would. And most importantly, two years in, we should not be having a shortage of tests. So that's a different failure that we got to deal with. My take is soon, hopefully over the next month, we're going to see a lot more tests come online. And at that point, I hope it becomes part of uh, part of the kind of standard operating procedure for ending isolation that you need to get a negative test as well. Dr. Dr. Ja, I have a, a chart that summarizes where we are in comparison to a week ago. I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but I'll read it aloud. Uh, new cases, plus 61.5%. This is just within the last week. New deaths, 17.8% growth. Hospitalizations, plus 3.2%. Vaccines administered, minus 33.4%. Can we yet discern whether Omicron is more mild in comparison to the Delta variant? Yeah, it's a great question. I think two things about those numbers. First, a lot of it affected by the holidays. My fear is that those numbers are actually going to get accelerated and get much, much worse as we pull out of the holidays and a lot more people start getting tested. Um, but all of the data so far, whether it's New York, San Francisco, London, South Africa, is pointing to a milder version of this disease. I don't want people to become complacent, not mild enough that if you're unvaccinated and you get infected, you're going to do just fine. But I think for vaccinated, particularly boosted people, I do think the evidence suggests that they're not going to get particularly sick. I feel like something has significantly changed since you and I were together a couple of days ago. And, and, and maybe it's just, you know, my own personal orbit. 
But I feel like now many of us are just a degree of separation away from someone who has tested positive in a way that we weren't previous. Am I an outlier or is that now more the norm than it's ever been? It is definitely the norm. You know, it used to be, I would say, up till about a week ago, I got maybe one or two phone calls a week from a friend or a colleague, someone they knew but had tested positive. Now I'm getting five to 10 a day. Everyone I know is getting is testing positive. Omicron is spreading really, really rapidly. Uh, so you are not an outlier. This is very much why I think those case numbers are actually kind of underestimating how much infection is out there. In terms of where we're headed in 2022, might there be a silver lining insofar as so many will soon have had it that surely we're getting closer to herd immunity? Yeah, here's how I think about what's going to happen in the upcoming few weeks. I think we're going to see an acceleration of infections probably for another week or two. Again, it's hard to predict exactly. My hope is by mid-January, we see a peak. We start coming down. That's the experience of South Africa. We're starting to see that in London, maybe early data. And what that means is by the time we get to the end of January into February, yeah, we're going to have built up a lot more population immunity. The goal is to try to build up population immunity through vaccines and boosters and not through infections. But Omicron is going to make that a real challenge. So when, in terms of the timeline, is the light at the end of the tunnel? Is it the spring? Is it the summer? Oh, I think it's early spring, even late winter. I think January is going to be a really, really hard month. I think people should just brace themselves for a month where lots of people are going to get infected. Unfortunately, a lot of unvaccinated people, a lot of people who have not gotten a vaccine are going to end up getting pretty sick. Um, And it's going to be pretty disruptive. Uh, My hope is as we get into February, and certainly by the time we get into March, infection numbers will come way down. uh, And it'll also start getting spring, and the weather will start getting better, and that'll also help. Uh, That combination means, to me, late winter, early spring should be much, much better. Give me practical guidance on masking. What type of mask and in what circumstances? Yeah, so I wear a mask. Now I wear a mask whenever I'm indoors, in public, obviously not at home. Uh, But when I don't know other people's vaccine status, uh, I wear a mask. So what do I do? I I think of masking kind of in two contexts. If it's something like I'm going to pop into a a grocery store for five minutes and it's not super crowded, a good surgical mask, one of those blue masks, uh, if they fit reasonably well, is pretty good and I think is pretty reasonable. If I'm going to be in a place for a longer period of time, I was at a uh, at the Boston Pops holiday concert for an hour and a half. Everybody was wearing a mask. It was vaccine only. I wore a high quality mask. There are KF94s that are available, uh, N95s. If you're not sure which one to get, there's a great organization called Project 95. You can go to their website and you can find really high quality masks. I get mine from Amazon. These are not super expensive, about a buck a a mask. But there are a lot of good quality masks out there. And I would urge people to wear a higher quality mask anytime they're in a place with lots of people and they're going to be indoors for any extended period of time. Dr. Ja, let's uh, respond to some social media. I'll lean on you because you're the person with the expertise. If we were infected with COVID recently before having a chance to get boosted, when is it recommended we get the booster? I hear different answers, really want to do my part and get boosted, but looking for guidance on when. Your answer? 
Yeah, I say once you've recovered, it's perfectly safe to get a booster. Uh, obviously, uh, if you want to wait a little bit of time soon after you've recovered, you have a pretty high degree of, of antibodies and you should be okay to hold off a l- little bit. I wouldn't wait any longer than three months, but as soon as you've recovered, it's safe to go ahead and get that booster shot. One more, Dr. Ja, here it comes. After 10 full days in isolation, I am still rapid antigen, Binex, positive on day 11. Should I continue to isolate and for how long? I have had three times Pfizer. Yeah, this is a really good question. It's tough. Officially, you're done with isolation, but the fact that you're still testing positive means you may still be contagious. So what I would do is, again, you can follow CDC guidelines. What I would do is I would wear a mask when you're around other people, uh, continue testing. It should turn negative in the next couple of days. Uh, But you're really one of the outliers who can be contagious for longer than 10 days. Final question, and this time I mean it. It's from me, not from social media. What if you've been exposed to someone who has now tested positive, and of course we face a situation where it's hard to get tested? What should someone in that circumstance do? Yeah, the CDC just updated its guidance on that as well, and actually thinks really good guidance. It says if you're fully vaccinated and boosted, you should you're different than everybody else. If you're fully vaccinated and boosted, you do not need to go into quarantine. Um, if you are not boosted and you are vaccinated more than six months out, or obviously if you're unvaccinated, uh, you should go into quarantine for at least five days. Uh, you should then get a negative. You should get then get a test. Uh, and make sure you're negative. But basically, it differentiates boosted people from non-boosted people. Uh, the full new guidance is out on the CDC website. But uh, I would take it pretty seriously because a lot of people who have been exposed are getting then turning around and getting infected themselves. It's a lot to comprehend. Thank you so much for being here to shed some light on it. My pleasure. Thank you. Don't forget tonight's survey question. Which year will history judge worse? Which year will you judge worse? 2020 or 2021? Go to my website at Smirconish.com, cast a ballot, I'll give you the results at the end of the hour. The unvaccinated in America need more incentives to get immunized, not incentives to stay unvaxxed. So why are some GOP governors carving out exemptions for the holdouts? And what does Dr. Zeke Emanuel make of it? He was once on Joe Biden's COVID advisory team. What is the way forward and not backward? I'll ask him next. You know, it was just a few months ago that we saw headlines like this. Florida had become the 23rd Republican-led state to end pandemic unemployment benefits early. The goal was to incentivize people to return to work. Yet with the politics over vaccine mandates heating up, critics say some of these states are now incentivizing people to quit their jobs. At least five Republican-led states have extended unemployment benefits to people who've lost their jobs over vaccine mandates They include Florida, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and Tennessee. Three more states are considering the idea as well, and this could be just the beginning. Joining me now is Dr. Zeke Emanuel, former member of then-President-elect Biden's COVID advisory board. Dr. Emanuel, unemployment benefits usually are to help someone along who has lost their job through no fault of their own. The conventional scenario, they work at a factory, the factory lost a big contract, they're now out of work, they didn't cause it. With that prism, what do you make of this? Well, I don't like this incentive at all. I think this uh, 
basically says people who are rejecting the vaccine, uh, mainly because of their against vaccinations, uh, are actually not are doing social harm. And now governors are rewarding them. That is a very bad incentive uh, and just the opposite of what the country needs. What's the real purpose? Do you think it's to undermine the president's vax mandate in the name of individual liberty? I don't think it's in the name of individual liberty. It's in the name of politics. No person who was present at the founding of this country, Franklin, Washington, Madison, Hamilton, would endorse this idea of liberty. Liberty always involved the idea that you can do what you want as long as you don't impinge on someone else. Uh, and that is not what's happening here. People who stay unvaccinated are impinging on other people. They're propagating the virus. They're going to hospitals that are overloaded if they happen to get very sick. This is hardly individual liberty that does not affect the well-being of other people. No founding father would recognize this as a legitimate argument for individual liberty. Are you comfortable, I discussed in the first portion of the program with Dr. Ashish Jha, the CDC changing its guidance on isolation from 10 days to five days. What does Dr. Zeke Emanuel make of that? Well, I am, not, uh, Ashish Jha was a little more comfortable with it than I am. Uh, I think it has the advantage of being clear uh, mostly. I don't think it is accurate. First of all, most cases, yes, you're not going to be infectious after five days. But with Omicron, we don't need many cases to begin spreading a lot. That's the first thing. The second, it does rely on people wearing very high quality N95 or KN95 masks uh, uh, constantly after the five days are up for another five days. And we know that's just not been happening very conscientiously in the United States. And finally, there's no test. I mean, if we had a reliable, you could get a PCR test, you could get the results back in eight to 10 hours at day five, and you knew you were negative, I would feel more confident with that advice. But the testing problem here means that you're going to make a decision, I'm done with isolation after five days without knowing your test status. That's not a good place to be, in my humble opinion. And I also worry, I'll just piggyback on that, and, and I worry that these are guidance for people who are probably wanting to do the right thing. There's an entire portion of society that we're not reaching already, and now it just seems as if it's getting a wee bit more complicated. Oh, I agree with you. There are many people who, you know, don't like to wear masks. They have their masks below their nose. They don't have very good masks. They're still using cloth masks. Um, and it's going to legitimate them five days and I'm done, uh, the mask part is they're not going to really pay attention to. Yeah, I'm very nervous about that. I understand the rationale. Most people aren't going to be infectious given the short incubation time of Omicron. We need a lot of people back at work. We can't have 10% of the healthcare workforce not working. We can't have all these airline employees not working. But safety first. If we're going to have events where someone who was positive, comes back to work after five days and spreads Omicron, that's not going to be very helpful. Dr. Emanuel, quick final question. What's your level of optimism as we look toward 2022 on this issue? Well, I think the optimistic scenario uh, is uh, 
that we will have a very bad January and February. Remember, the deaths are a lagging indicator. We're going to be going up for uh, two to three more weeks pretty reliably. Um, hospitalizations are going to go up and deaths are going to go up. Uh, that's going to come down. The case load is going to come down, but the deaths will peak probably towards the end of January, early February. And we won't get low uh, for uh, four or five or six weeks after that. Um, I think we might then get to a point where we have continued decline, uh, maybe uh, end of May, early June, we might see more normalcy. I think a lot is going to depend upon whether there's a virus that can arise that can outcompete Omicron, and that we don't know. If it outcompetes it, we could be in for another really, really bad year. Um, and I think that's the pessimistic scenario. The optimistic scenario is Omicron's the worst we've got and uh, we're able to uh, overcome it. Uh, lots of people get vaccinated um, and uh, normalcy returns May, June. The pessimistic scenario is something uh, outcompetes Omicron because it can evade the immune system and, and then we're in real trouble. I hope the glass is half full. Help me respond to one social media. I'll put it up and read it to you because I don't think you can see it. End mandates, says Stewart. Let insurance companies deny all COVID-related claims for unvaxxed patients. Dr. Zeke Emanuel says what? Well, look, I'm a doctor. We do not do that. We don't. We treat people and we treat people regardless of their situation, you know? And uh, so we're, we don't differentiate whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. We may regret uh, the fact that you're unvaccinated, but we still treat you, we give you the best care we can. Insurance companies are a different thing, but I don't think that is the way we should penalize people. We should do the best for them, and that is uh, push the mandates. Uh, I do think Tony Fauci's hint that we should have it for travel. I've been calling for that since uh, July and August. Um, I think there are many other situations in which we can get people vaccinated. The vast majority of those people who haven't been vaccinated, they're really sitting on the fence and they just need some encouragement. And a mandate is a form of encouragement for them. Well, I'm about to deal with the airline scenario next. So thank you for saying that. Uh, nice to have you back, Dr. Emanuel. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. You're doing a great job. To Zeke's point, not that point, but to his prior point, would a mandate for the unvaxxed on domestic flights change the course of the virus? What does a leading voice for flight attendants in America think? I'll ask Sarah Nelson about that and this new CDC guidance that recommends shorter quarantines for some Americans. She's next. It's one of the busiest travel days of the year, yet airlines are canceling flights left and right in part due to the Omicron surge. As I reported earlier, Dr. Fauci seems to be walking back his own belief that airlines should seriously consider vaccine mandates for passengers sooner than later. Meanwhile, tonight, the nation's largest flight attendance union is criticizing the new CDC guidance on quarantining. Let's get some perspective from Sarah Nelson, the international president of that association. Sarah, thank you for coming back. I have your statement in front of me. You're pretty hot about this. Rather than read it aloud, tell everybody why. 
Sure, Michael. So this seemed to be pushed by the airlines who were asking for a reduction in the quarantine time because of staffing shortages. The biggest concern about that is we're not going to pretend like we're the medical experts here. Like we know how many days are the right number of days. I'm not even going to try to say that. But what we said is that we want to hear from the medical professionals about what's right, rather than having the thrust here be about trying to staff flights. And what the airlines are then saying is that that is their focus, which concerns us very much because what CDC said was they were going to reduce from 10 days to five days, but only for asymptomatic people. And if you wear a mask consistently and the right kind of mask uh, for five days following. So we want to know that the airlines are then, and the rest of corporate America, is focused on public health and safety and make sure that they have very supportive policies that help workers understand that they have the right not to have to come back to work if the airline's calling them. Delta Airlines announced right away after the CDC guidance they didn't herald any kind of public health measure. What they said was this is going to give Delta more flexibility to schedule crews. And we're really concerned that's going to put workers in a bad position of choosing whether to stay home and be safe and take good measures for public health or be forced to come to work and feel like they're going to lose their job if they don't. I can't help but think, having spoken to Dr. Ashish Jha and then Dr. Zeke Emanuel, both of whom commented on this, that if there were more tests available, a requirement would have been that at the end of those five days, you need a test before you can end isolation. I don't know if you heard either of them say that or if you have a reaction to that observation. I did, and, and we certainly believe that would be a good idea. The UK reduced the number of uh, quarantine days to seven, but only after two negative tests. We have a testing problem in this country, obviously, and that's part of the logistical problems that make this so difficult. But that would be the better thing to do, because why would we be saying that it's okay to have symptomatic people come back and possibly still be infectious and possibly continue this pandemic? That is the root cause of the whole thing. We've got to get through this pandemic fatigue and make good decisions about how to end it, not add to it. Sarah, I don't know that you could know the answer to my next observation, but as I'm watching television and, and, and these terrible stories about flights being canceled during a holiday weekend, people being stranded, not seeing loved ones, all I can wonder is whether sick passengers, in fact, I'll say it more specifically, unvaccinated passengers are getting crew sick. You have any reaction to that, anecdotal or otherwise? Well, look, of course that's happening because infections have happened at the same rate as in our communities. So it's not as if the controlled environment on the airlines make it any better. What we have done is controlled the environment to make sure that it's not any worse traveling than going to do any other indoor activities. But of course, sick people are traveling and getting crews infected, and those crews are then taking it home to their families. More likely crews are vaccinated, at least with the first and second dose, um, maybe not boosted yet. Uh, but this is still, this is still, a stress and strain on them and their families. And it's some of the reasons that people are a little concerned about picking up that overtime, uh, overtime hours in order to make the operation work. You know, air travel okay. is subject to severe weather too. And there's been a lot at play here, but it's, it's really made it very difficult for workers to come to work and feel safe. So just to button this up, doesn't it mean that Dr. Fauci was closer in the morning than he was in the evening here on CNN to where we need to go, which is if you want to fly, you got to be vaccinated. Let me tell you this, Michael, it has been really difficult because we have not tracked vaccinations in this country. So it would be a hard logistical thing to implement. And we don't want to have it solely 
on rest on the airlines or the frontline workers to make it work. But I am more committed than ever to work with this government to find the logistical means in order to put that in place, because this is a safety issue in our workplace. And these conditions now with CDC resting solely on the advocacy from airlines to try to address the staffing issues as opposed to the public health issues, make it more important than ever that we try to mandate vaccines wherever we can so that people can have that incentive to get vaccinated and we can all be safe. In other words, you worry that the policing responsibility would fall to your members and that you don't think is fair. That is not fair. That's not right. And it would be a problem for airlines as well. There is not a way to track that right now. This is not something that could be implemented tomorrow and actually work and make air travel more seamless. But what we do know is that the demand came back when people started getting vaccinated and when those mask policies were in place, people had confidence in that. Those safety measures directly relate to our economic security. So we know that mandating vaccines, Getting vaccines out to more people is going to make our workspace more safe, is going to allow us to get through this pandemic, connect with the rest of the world and experience the freedoms that we had before this pandemic. So we would be focused in every way to work through those logistics and make it work, Michael, because it's a good public health safety initiative. Well, I mean, I think it'd be a great way to light a fire under the folks, uh, fannies who have not gotten vaccinated. You want to go get on that plane? Then this is what it's going to take. Sarah, thank you so much. I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you, Michael. Have a good night. Happy holidays. Question, you, you too. Did you go back to the office this year? Are you still able to work from there? Do you even want to go back? This latest COVID surge only adds to the questions about what the business world will look like in the new year. Marketing professor, I'll add guru and author, Scott Galloway is looking at the big picture and why this is about more than just debate on working from home. He's next. The Omicron surge isn't just changing the way that we travel, it's also affecting the way we work. Many companies planning to shift away from remote working and hoping to reopen in 2022, they're now rethinking those plans. My next guest says that could lead to some long-term unexpected consequences impacting everything from housing prices to romantic relationships. Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business. He's also the author of Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity. And soon you'll see him hosting his own program on our streaming network, CNN Plus, which debuts next year. Scott, I read the book. You and I spoke about the book. And the takeaway, as I recall, among many was, you said to me, crisis like COVID, it speeds up trends that were already there, but now exponentially so. So what trends are you looking at that you think will be sped up by COVID? Well, you're talking about remote work. Uh, Pre-pandemic, about 20, 25% of people work from home. Now it's 75%. And if you think about a real unlock, and there's an opportunity here, every day we go on working from home, we get better at it. We get better at renting our human capital to organizations. And you start from a place of strength. Think about this. Think about the amount of time it takes to get ready, get to transportation, get into the office. You can spend 10 minutes after you get into your office just to get to your desk. If it's an hour each way of time, you're talking about 12 weeks of time that you have to sort of redistribute. You're also talking about 20 to $30,000 that corporations spend per person to bring you to this amalgam of steel, glass, and asbestos. So there could be just an extraordinary unlock. And 
you know, we've been going, we've been in this pandemic now, we're coming up on two years, lost 800,000 people. World War II was three and a half years. We lost about 400,000 people. To think that this is just a shock is not true. This is a structural shift. We are changing the way we interact with the professional world. That doesn't bode well for the commercial real estate market, does it? Oh, gosh, Michael, if you want to get a group of people in denial together for dinner, invite over owners of commercial real estate. You're talking about, and this is this is an unbelievable shift in our economy. The asset class known as commercial real estate office buildings is somewhere between six and $12 trillion in North America. And if people do what Apple is suggesting and come back three days a week, most will be hybrid. We're going to go back to the office, just not as much. You're talking about a 40% gross destruction in demand, or you're talking about the GDP of Germany leaking from one asset class to another, specifically residential. So what are you seeing? You're seeing 18 to 25% vacancy rates across the major cities. San Francisco registered its lowest and its highest vacancy rates of commercial real estate in 2020. And all of that capital is pouring into residential, where we're seeing double-digit price increases in a low interest rate environment where we've ever seen. In some, it is terrible to own an office building and it's about to get worse and it's a great time to be in the home building business. How about education? Two under my roof, uh, one undergrad, one grad school, not going back on time this January. Yeah, effectively what we have is, uh, you know, at NYU and Harvard, we have 60 and $65,000 streaming networks at this point. And if you think about whether it's Tide Pods or Portion or Kion, you know, manufacturers have uh, innovated around format. At colleges, we still have the traditional four-year degree that you have to come through the operating system of a campus and an admissions department that is increasingly rejectionist. And I think people are pushing back and we're beginning to unbundle the certification, whether it's Google training 100,000 people without a college degree to do things in high demand professions, whether it's vocational training, which I think we're finally starting to take seriously, you are going to see the most disruptable product in history, and that is higher ed that has raised its prices faster than healthcare, and yet has not innovated that the fists of stone of COVID are coming for that chin. A $750 billion industry is about to be disrupted, and that disruption is overdue. Tells me that NYU and Harvard will survive, but there'll be others that'll fall by the wayside. So by the way, if you're not gonna find love in the classroom, or in the workplace, I mean, what will be the impact on relationships? That's the correct question, Michael. And that's really the second order effect that we're not thinking about from a societal standpoint. One in three relationships begin at work. And when you no longer have that venue, what we've seen is it used to be 20% of relationships began online. Now it's 40% heading to 50%. And the Gini coefficient, or essentially mating inequality, is greater online than income inequality in the US. And what do we mean by that? A small fraction of the people on these dating sites get a disproportionate amount of the interest, which leads to a society that's gonna have household formation later, fewer marriages, more frustrated, especially men, where over the next five years, you're only gonna see half as many men graduate from college. And that has real societal implications because the most dangerous person in the world is a broke, young, and alone young man. And we are producing way too many of them. And we're gonna have to think about what does it mean to have big tech come in to kind of this last corner of our lives, and that is how we form and maintain relationships. It's a scary thought. Scott Galloway, thank you so much for being here nonetheless.
Thank you, Michael. You've doubled the amount of time I spend with my boys. We watch Premier League soccer and Michael Smirkanish at nine. <laughs> what? And no succession? What are you kidding me? That's just that's just that's just their folks. But yeah, thank you. You've done a great job. It's been a pleasure to watch you. Nice to see you. Thank you. The pandemic causing many of us to ignore another major health crisis, addiction. A remarkable story in the San Francisco Chronicle follows one mother's journey walking away from her own life to try and save her daughter from fentanyl. That mom, Lori Steves, is here tonight. You'll want to listen to her story and plea because other families in this country are facing the same battle or could be in the future. And she's next. Tonight, I want to shed more light on a crisis that needs the same kind of all-hands-on-deck response that COVID has received, because for people age 18 to 45, the leading cause of death isn't COVID, car accidents, or even suicide. It's fentanyl overdoses. The synthetic opioid is cheaper, easier to obtain, and up to 50 times stronger than heroin. More than 92,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2020, eclipsing the toll from any year since the opioid epidemic began in the 1990s. Among the city's hardest hit, San Francisco, where the drug has found fertile ground among the thousands of homeless who are there. The chief medical examiner reports the city lost 516 people to fentanyl overdose in 2020, more than double the number killed by COVID that year. And this year is on track to see similar numbers, if not worse, prompting the mayor to declare a state of emergency. My next guest is a mother trying to save her daughter from this fate. The San Francisco Chronicle followed her months-long quest and how it took her from her home in the Seattle area to the streets of the infamous Tenderloin District in search of her 34-year-old daughter, Jessica. Lori Steves joins me now. Lori, what caused you to go in search of your daughter in San Francisco? Oh, um... I, I had wanted to search for her for a while, but I had no idea where she was for about nine years. <clears throat> um, I lost her younger brother to a fentanyl overdose last December. And that really prompted me um, to start searching again for her. I've read the Chronicle story, so I know the answer to these questions, but I want you to tell an international audience. How did you finally find her? Oh. Um, well, uh, a friend did some, um, some computer searching, um, that involved, I believe, geocaching photographs. Um, I may have the wording wrong, I'm not sure, but, um, some, some high-tech stuff she did on the computer and was able to locate, um, an, an intersection in the Tenderloin where Jessica was, a apparently known to frequent. Um, several pictures had been taken of her there. So when you finally got together, that, you shared a you shared a you shared a meal. She did drugs three times in your presence. It had to be heartbreaking. Extremely heartbreaking. Uh, it, it was something for, I, I never thought I would see. For three and a half months, you relocated, even even worked as a, a chef in San Francisco, just trying to keep yourself afloat and reach her. How close do you think you came to bringing her back and spending more time with you? Uh, I thought I was close once, Michael. 
Um, there was one particular day where she agreed to um, drug tra to medication treatment for her addiction to fentanyl. Um, it didn't last. Uh, Jessica goes from bounces from one situation to another rather quickly, um, one thought to another rather quickly. And um, it was a, a fleeting moment. Um, I pushed for it to happen again, and I will continue to push for it to happen again. I will continue to initiate you, conversations with her. What do you think of the San Francisco response to your daughter and others who are like her? Um, up until just recently, um, I, I heard there, there's been a bigger response in the last several weeks. Um, however, the response has been to house the addicts, not treat the addicts. Um, addiction isn't be being treated as the illness that it is. Uh, mental health is not being treated. There are, the streets are just flooded, flooded with addicted, mentally ill people in the Tenderloin, as well as flooded with open air drug dealing, dealers in broad daylight on street corners, just dealing right out in the open. Um, it's an epidemic there. It really is. Um, you have lots of company. Housing. A lot of parents. A lot of parents are facing the same challenges that you're facing. What is it that you say to them, or to someone who's watching you and fears a son or daughter is headed in this same direction? Keep fighting for them. Keep fighting for them. Speak up. Speak. I think we lost her. We, we lost, did we lose Lori? Listen, the San Francisco Chronicle did a hell of a job in chronicling. Uh, Lila, do you have more of the photographs? Can you just show some of the photographs that, the, that ran in the Chronicle? Because the, the, the Chronicle published photographs that she took of her daughter and, and of the, the horror scene that she found when she went to the Tenderloin District in San Francisco and tried to rescue her. As I said, you know, with, with her last possessions and last dime, she leaves her house in Washington State, goes to San Francisco, doesn't know if she'll even find her. And then with a lot of assistance on the ground, she finds her, spends time with her, tries to bring her back from a, a very dark side, can't do it. Imagine then when she has to go home near Seattle to leave that city, leaving San Francisco, having just spent that time with her daughter and, and knowing that she hasn't been successful. But she hasn't, she hasn't given up is the point. She hasn't given up is the point. To be continued, because I'd love to return to that story. All right, uh, we'll come back in a moment and we'll do the results of tonight's survey question and a little bit more social media. Just a quick note, if I may, uh, the mom that we just lost the feed, Lori Steves, when I said that I read about her in the San Francisco Chronicle, I should also have given recognition to Heather Knight because she wrote the piece about that mom's search for her daughter. I'm gonna put it in my Twitter account as soon as this show ends and make it very easy for everybody to access it because it's really a worthy read. Okay, 
Results now from the survey question tonight. Which year will history judge worse, 2020 or 2021? Nearly 10,000 voted. 64% said 2020. Interesting. 36% said 2021. If I had the option of calling it a draw, I would have. Here's more social media reaction that came in during the course of tonight's program. Uh, 2020, because the pandemic was new, shocking, and the numbers became part of our daily lives. You know, I, I don't know. I'm looking at 2020 and I'm saying, well, at least we had two and a half decent months before everything hit the fan. Unlike 2021 was just nonstop, constant chaos. One more social media reaction if I have time, and I think that I do. I changed my vote from 2020 to 2021. I can't see a darker day in our history than January 6th. Geez, Susan, I wasn't even thinking of January 6th, but if you throw January 6th into the mix, I was really only thinking of COVID, then I guess that's the, uh, the tiebreaker. Well, thank you so much for watching. I'll be back here one more night, tomorrow night. Don Lemon begins in just a moment with my friend Laura Coates sitting in. Take it away, Laura. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.